Welcome to Financially Ever After, where award-winning and nationally recognized financial expert Stacy Francis will bring you savvy tips and words of wisdom on how to secure your financial future before, during, and after divorce. For 30 minutes every other week, you'll hear personal stories from women who have either faced or are currently facing this transition. In addition, you'll also soak up knowledge and inspiration from the industry's top legal, financial, residential, and mental health professionals. And now here's our host, Stacy Francis. Welcome to Financially Ever After. We come to you every other week with great financial information, legal information, to help you make smart decisions during the divorce process. And today we have a fantastic matrimonial attorney, Chaim Steinberger, and he graduated top of his class in law school, earning numerous distinctions and working at some of the prestigious law firms in the country. Clerking for the federal judge allowed him to peer behind the curtains and understand what motivates judges to rule the way that they do. During this time, he went through his own nasty divorce and realized there must be a better way. And since then, he's dedicated his life to practicing that better way on behalf of clients and the public. Utilizing the latest in mediation, negotiation, and psychological techniques, Heim protects and defends his clients when they are most vulnerable. I love that you use your compassion, insight to comfort clients, to give them the freedom and allow them to make the right choices. You're very dedicated and protect your clients from many of the shenanigans that their spouses try to pull. He gives them the best chances to achieve their goals. You're respected by many. I know this personally, warm, approachable, and I truly think that he needs a stand-up comedian job on the side because he's really, really funny too. So with that, I just want to say a great big thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here with you. I've been a great admirer of your work and your work on behalf of women and your work in educating and empowering people. And in a way, your work tracks mine. It's about empowering others, giving them the knowledge and giving them the facility to be able to do what they want to do and achieve the goals they want to achieve. And you just talked about a really um, interesting article that came out, Divorce with destruction and so can you tell me a little bit about um, you know, that that article and some of the key takeaway and points for our listeners to be able to go through this process without destruction of, of their family of their relationships so too many people think that mediation or these other touchy-feely type of types of negotiation techniques means walk away from less than you deserve in order to not upset the apple car, to not upset the other side. And so some lawyers, many clients believe that if you want to get the best possible deal, you need to be aggressive, you need to be destructive, you need to be threatening, you need to further traumatize the relationship between the two people. That's not true. Game theory teaches that if you and I have to split a bowl of jelly beans the best way we can do that is by working together. If I know what you need the jelly beans for and you know what I need the jelly beans for, number one, 
we can do so in a way that it doesn't further damage our relationship. We can negotiate in a way that it brings us closer together rather than pushing us further apart. And we can each get better and we can get a better result. So if I know that you have a window display and you need the jelly beans there, and you know that my son has got a science class and he needs the jelly beans there, maybe I'll let you have all the jelly beans for the first 24 hours and then you let me have it. And so you get the entire bowl and I get the entire bowl. But that's only possible if we start to work together, if we can start to create a measure of trust, because as long as parties don't, and this is very difficult to hear, the first question, whenever somebody calls me up and, and I start talking about the different dispute resolution mechanisms, the person calling me is compelled to say, well, you can't negotiate with the other person because we all have to believe that we are reasonable. So as long as I believe that you're reasonable too, hey, I don't need a lawyer, we can work it out. The only time I'm ready to call a lawyer is when I've come to the conclusion that you're being unreasonable. So the real skill is how do I convert not only my client from being unreasonable, from dealing with affairs and, 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 and um, the fears that limit their ability to think broadly, but also communicate through opposing counsel to the opposing party so that we create an atmosphere of trust where both parties can start to broaden their horizons and see what's best for them. Mm-hmm. And a big part of this process is finding that lawyer. And one of the things I'd love to hear from you is essentially how do you find that person? What we hear from women, we interviewed 150 women about what are the top reasons you hire or don't hire a lawyer? And it was interesting. It was um, number one, uh, experience. Number two, followed by that, um, that that lawyer actually really listens for them and looks out for their best interests. Number three was how strong their relationship was with judges. And so there were some very specific things that um, these women said, but I assume there's more that you need to be thinking about than just even some of it, some of these pieces. For you, what would you recommend for someone reaching out to a lawyer? So it really is a difficult question because you're coming into a field that you don't know anything about and you now have to make a determination about who's good and who's not. Was it Harvey McKay, author of Swim with the Sharks, back when when I first started reading self-help books, who said that people make a mistake when they say practice makes perfect. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Only perfect practice makes perfect. So I loved what you said, a lawyer who listens. Was it Dr. Jerome Groupman who wrote a book called How Doctors Think, who said that you can have the best doctor in the world, but if the doctor doesn't care about you as a person, get rid of the doctor. You're better off having a doctor who cares about you as a human being, maybe even if the doctor is a little bit less skilled. So the skill of representing people encompasses so many different disciplines. The lawyer needs to be 
needs to give the client safety and security so that they know they're being taken care of. So part of that is listening, part of that is being interested. I argue that the number one thing that lawyers do wrong, somebody called me up a divorce coach and said, what's the, what's the biggest challenge that clients have in court? And I said that their lawyers don't listen. The lawyer knows a little piece of the story, but doesn't know it all. And the client is burbling with a sense of injustice. And if the lawyer doesn't get it, then the lawyer can't convey it to the judge. And so you have the client seething there, and that's when you need the three court officers standing behind the client to make sure that nobody goes wrong. So number one is a lawyer who listens, who understands, who cares about the person. Empathy is so very important. A lawyer who's a straight shooter, the lawyer has to be able to give the client good advice and know, okay, where where can I get you what you want? Where do we have to adjust expectations so that you can come out a winner? Mm -hmm. Okay. So if a client has got anger issues, has got has got um, alcohol issues, you may not go right in asking for custody. You may first send the client to take anger management classes, then take care of the alcohol, and then walk into court and say, Your Honor, this is a new person. Let's see what we can get them. So there's an element of being straight with a client. But the only way a lawyer can be straight with a client is only after the client is convinced that the lawyer has the client's best interests at heart. Because if somebody walks into a client, to a lawyer, and the lawyer blows them off and says, no way are you going to get that, the client's going to look for another lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, some lawyers are afraid of giving clients a straight scoop. So it starts with that sense of loyalty and being completely driven to achieve the client's goals. And that's when you can have those honest conversations. So I would argue that honesty, integrity is right up there. Without integrity, the judge doesn't buy what you're saying. The client knows that if, if opposing counsel can't trust you, the client knows that, that the client can't trust me. And so integrity would be the, the first and foremost, care and, I'm sorry, care and concern for the client. And I'm, I believe I'm quoting the Missouri, the Missoula Bar Association study that said when clients rehired lawyers, the reason they rehired the lawyers was he cared for me. He was concerned for me. Uh, Jay Foonberg wrote a book called Write, How to Write Bills Clients Rush to Pay. And he argues that lawyer bills should be written in a narrative format so that the client sees everything that you've done the entire month and goes, wow, you've really taken care of me. You've really done it good. So the, the, the bill ends up being the story of the lawsuit. We tried this, we researched that, we found the case that helped you this. We, dis we found the strategy, we developed a strategy. Another important piece to this is being able to develop a theory of the case. Now there are books written all about that. You probably don't want me to lecture for eight hours straight. Um, and, and, and trust me, I can do that, just give me a microphone. And this idea, see, too many people have the misconception that the practice of law is like arithmetic. I've had people call me up and say, Jaime, you're a great lawyer, you're too expensive. But I know this kid who just graduated law school. Why don't you develop the, the case, the strategy, and then I'll have the kid go into court and do it. 
And what people don't understand is that it's not arithmetic. You can't pipe up in court and go two plus two, your honor, and the judge goes four, of course. It doesn't work that way. It's more like chess. The same move that can make you win the, the game can make you lose the game if you make it just a drop too soon or a drop too late. What I think is interesting, too, and is there seems to be a different belief system between what clients really want from an attorney versus what attorneys think they want. And you had done some phenomenal research back to that Missouri study. And you talked about in over these last few minutes is that for clients, their number one concern when they hired a attorney was concerned that that attorney really cared about them. Um, number two, they talked about that person really being trustworthy, honest, ethical. You also talked about um, in the study competence and that they're efficient. Whereas when lawyers were asked, um, they said that were there were some other items. Number one, efficiency, the most efficient way to get through the, the process, which is interesting. That was only the fourth most important to individuals when they actually um, hired someone. They also said fair fee. That didn't even come up in the first four. Competence and then concern. So it's almost as if clients, when they're hiring an attorney, have a set of, of pieces, concern, honesty, ethics, competence, and efficiency that is the exact opposite in the order of what attorneys think is important because attorneys in the exact opposite order think efficiency, fees, competent, and then finally the least important, whether or not they're concerned about the client. There, it seems it, there's a big, a big uh, misconnect here. What's why is that and and what's going on here there is a big disconnect and when i came out of law school or when i was in my studious mode i also thought i just have to hit the books and it's okay it doesn't matter how i treat clients so long as i'm good at what i do and the truth is different it, it and it manifests itself it could be simple subtle ways but if people don't understand this, so if a client, if you're sitting in a client meeting and you answer emails or the phone rings or you let or you let one client overhear the personal information of another client, the client knows that you're you're not really there. You're not present in the moment. What did Andy Rooney say? What what kids today call multitasking? Our mothers used to call not paying attention. So it's true. It's true. It's true. So it's a, how many times do I go into family court and I'm making this really nuanced, sophisticated argument to the to the support magistrate and the support magistrate is is clicking on his on his calculator and I stop talking, of course, and the support magistrate goes, Go on, counselor, go on, I'm listening, and I feel like saying, No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're yeah, not. Yeah. So we have, and studies have actually shown that the human mind, as much as we think we can multitask, we don't really multitask. We give a slice and then we switch and then we give another slice back. So we're going back and forth, but we can't really do two things at one time. Mm -hmm. And so when a client is in the office, give the client your entire attention. Don't let your client wait in the waiting room. Walk out when you see them out, walk them out to the door. Give them the courtesy and the respect like we used to in old time. I'm old enough, I've got enough gray hairs to say. Like when I was a kid, the way we used to do it. 
And, and so a couple of years ago, I wrote an article for the ABA Family Law Section Journal called Make More Money by Being More Ethical, How Good Ethics is Also Good Business. So no client has ever fired a lawyer because he's too expensive. No client has ever not given that lawyer this, another job because he was too expensive. Lawyers, unfortunately, think I'll keep my fees down, but I don't have to worry about the clients. I don't have to give them my attention. I can I can have 500 pages flying around when they come in. The truth is clients want to know that you care about me. And so when a client walks into my office, the rest of the world is dead. I do not answer any phone calls. I do not take any text messages. I'm working with the client. And the client knows that just recently, we got discovery from opposing counsel at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I spent all oh, day nice. Saturday, all day Sunday, all day Monday, and I'm embarrassed to say all night Monday night so that I was ready for a Tuesday afternoon court appearance. But we got the goods, we managed to develop it. And at the end of all that time, I guess 25, 30, 45 hours, at the end of that, I looked at the client, I said, was there anything we did that we could have not done? Was there anything I did that I could have done more efficiently? And, and the answer was no. We needed to go down all the blind alleys to be able to do that. But the client knows that I put the client first and foremost. And so I have the credibility to be able to tell the client, you don't want to push that argument. Or too often clients come in and they make a list of demands. But really, and this goes back to the divorce without destruction, the whole mediation thing, the, the idea of instead of positional bargaining using principle excuse me principle negotiation which is to get to the reason behind the position so when the client comes in and says i want ta 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 it's like okay now tell me why and then you find out there's a that there's a whole other subtext to it that maybe even the client wasn't aware mm -hmm. and once you understand the subtext then you can say well how about i can satisfy your subtext do you still need all of those demands? And usually it's no, then that doesn't become. And so that's the difference between the reasonable clients and the unreasonable clients. And it's also the difference between a lawyer who listens and asks questions. I think it's really interesting because I've asked other lawyers what's important when someone's coming in to, to hire a lawyer and not one person have I ever heard say concern, that you know that person's concerned about you. I, that seems so simple, that seems so uh, basic, so normal, right? You would of course, just like you said, you go to a, a cardiac a surgeon, you have one that might be a tiny bit more skilled, and another one who you know really cares about, knows your family, knows your life, knows what's at stake, who you're gonna hire. You're gonna hire the one who really is gonna do everything they can to make that happen. This is a, a really powerful thing that um, women need to know, and so it's easy to tell if people care. I mean, that's powerful. It's hard to tell their real competence, right? Of course, you can do the research, you can look at their degrees, you can, you know, but that doesn't that doesn't assure you. But you can tell when someone cares about you by all of these things. Are they paying attention? 
Are they focusing on you? Are they willing to give up their weekend with a last minute court appearance? Um, that's something that we as women can figure out. Yes, you need the emotional intelligence. You need to, so too often in these extreme situations, extreme meaning tense and volatile and, and there's so much riding on it and we have the fear. And so the fear tends to narrow our vision and we end up with tunnel vision and you go, and I've had women and I'm like, you accused your husband of molesting your daughter? How could you do that? You knew it wasn't true. And they go, well, my lawyer told me to do that. And you go, but you know, that's not, it's immoral. It's unethical. You're a religious person that violates every tenant you've ever believed in. And oh, my lawyer told me to do that. And, and, and so too often we humanoids override our emotions with our thinking and we believe, oh, well, I was told this lawyer is a good lawyer. And, and I don't know if I've ever told you this before, I may have, they, I've, I've been collecting like the single determinative factor, the single determinative factor on whether therapy is going to be successful. If your best friend is going to therapy and you get to ask one question, what's the one question you can ask that will tell you immediately with the greatest likelihood of, of, of correlation as to whether therapy will be successful or not. You wanna take a step? I don't wanna put you on the spot. I have no clue. So many people say whether the patient is willing to listen and willing to change, you know, the old light bulb yeah, joke, yeah, how, yeah. Many, how, many, how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but the light bulb really, really has to want to change. Okay. <laughs> but the real answer to that is the amount of empathy from the therapist to the patient. And they did a study and they gave patients a dial on their far side where the doctor can't see it. And they gave the therapist a dial where the patient can't see it. And each one where, where they were instructed to always dial in how much empathy they were feeling either from the therapist to the patient or how much empathy the patient felt they were getting from the, and wouldn't you know it, every patient was spot on at every point in time, they knew exactly how. I guess the lesson, I would suggest the lesson from that is, we don't take advice from people who don't give a <clears throat> about us. Yeah. Okay. And so it's that care and concern. Now, the problem that I have with checklists, I've had people come into my office and you know it, whether physically or metaphorically, the person will come back. I usually do a three or five minute spiel about who I am and what I've done and, and why this is important and that's important. And, and, and at the end, maybe an hour or two in, they'll look at me and they'll go, well, Mr. Steinberger, are you involved in bar associations? And I get a chuckle out of that because clearly they're using some sort of checklist that somebody said, here's how to find a good lawyer. And the problem is I'm happy to answer that question but they can't evaluate the answer. There are some people involved with the bar associations are that awful. don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And then there are some people involved with bar associations that are at the top of their class. But how do you know that? So these checklists, these research, somebody can graduate a great, from a great school and not be so great. Somebody can graduate from a, a smaller class. So we're doing, there's now a proposal about whether LSAT should be going in. And, and I just posted on that thread this morning about how there's a correlation between um, 
college GPAs and LSATs to how well students do at law school. But there may not be a correlation between how well students do in law school and how good they are as lawyers. So that's the bridge. What do you need? And I love that question. What makes a really great lawyer? So let me, let me, if one thing I certainly have to say, and this comes from Judge Ralph Adam Fine. So I've been collecting best books in a lot of different areas. The best book that I've ever found on trial practice as qua as its own discipline, trial practice, was written by the late Judge Ralph Adam Fine of the um, of the Wisconsin Appellate Court. And he says that the single greatest determinative factor on whether a lawyer will be successful or not is whether the lawyer truly believes in their gut in the justice of the client's case. So I've had women come in to me and they'd sit down and talk for about 15 minutes and I'd say, okay, let me see if I'm getting this, if I understand you correctly. And then I would reframe and repeat what they just said and the woman would look at me and go, oh my God, in 10 minutes you've said it better. I've been living with this for five years and I could have never said it quite that way. And you make it sound so powerful and so compelling. And so, but it's only if, if the lawyer doesn't believe in the justice of the case, the judge isn't going to buy it, the jury isn't going to buy it. So this goes across the school, not only matrimonial law, in any law. If the lawyer doesn't believe that the client is right, I, I was in chambers a while back and the judge looks at me and goes, counselor, you can stop posturing now, the clients aren't here. And I'm like, you don't understand, judge, I don't ever posture. I'm a believer. I believe in the justice, because if I don't believe, so we spoke earlier about the theory of the case. If I can't believe hook, line, and sinker that the theory of the case that my client is being, that there's an injustice being done, that my client has to win, then I need to adjust my theory, then I need to develop a different strategy so that it does have that compelling ring to it. Yeah. If it's sort of, and actually, I got to tell you, I think it's more fun lawyering than it was judging. When I was sitting in chambers and I get two sets of papers, the law has to be this, the law has to be that. And I'm like, oh, I can go either way. But now you feel you feel the passion of the client. No, Your Honor, this is an outrage. We have to do something about it. So the ability to be able to craft a compelling theory of the case, to be able to weave, I argue, that lawyering is like a crystal glass where the sun shines in and you see this beautiful pattern on the bottom. But all you have to do is shift it a little bit and the entire pattern changes. Good lawyers never lie. If a lawyer lies, they can destroy their credibility and they will never again be trusted by the judge or by anybody else. And so a good lawyer never lies, but we're masters of spin control. How do I weave together the facts so that I create a compelling case? So a while ago, I know I saw that you at the New York State Bar Association summer meeting, I think a year or two back, I was walking down to a committee meeting and a judge walks up alongside me and says, you know, Chaim, you're a great lawyer. And I'm like, thank you, judge. That's very kind of you to say, but I haven't appeared before you in quite a while. And he goes, I know, but we judges remember this. And I'm like, thank you. That means a lot. That's huge. That's huge, right? And so I say, okay, what made you say that? And he quotes to me from a paper I wrote him years before. And he says, in one case, and I remember the case, 
I didn't have a case direct. So we have a duty of candor towards the tribunal. Judge Jones, I'm forgetting his first name, who was involved with the Brooklyn Bar Association, then a, a Supreme Court judge, then he was appointed to the Court of Appeals, uh, the late Judge Jones, uh, Theodore, Teddy Jones. At one of the Bar Association meetings, he said, I always protected my judges. If a judge was going, he said, a judge once said, I'm going to rule in your favor. And he said, judge, I appreciate you ruling in my favor, but if you do it on this basis, you're going to get reversed. Don't do it, I'd rather not win. But here's how you rule for me on this basis, because this is a solid. Don't rule on a nonsense. He says, I protected my judges. So we have a duty of candor towards the tribunal. We can't deceive, we can't hide. I was in this case, I couldn't find case law that supported my position, but I had an argument to make. So I started a paragraph saying, although there's no case directly on point, by analogy, this case gives the court authority to do da, 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 to do what I'm asking it to do. And years later, he remembered, that was my way of fessing up that I couldn't find anything directly, but this is the closest I got to, but this gives us enough authority. In fact, the judge ruled in my favor and it's a published decision. And, and part of my work, I volunteer for Operation Standby, so I was representing a United States service member stationed in Korea. And they were having a custody dispute and I was, I had to get a judge in Brooklyn to decide custody of a child living with parents on an army base in Korea. Wow. Haim, I can't thank you enough. You've, you've shared a different perspective of finding the right lawyer that I've, I've never really heard discussed. And that is that care, that concern, that understanding and feeling and knowing your client's story and the injustice that they are going through. But I'm also hearing using research, creativity, to be able to share that story in a compelling, passionate way, to be able to win that argument. Um, a very different way than I've ever heard that explained. Um, anything that you want to share with our listeners as far as how they might be able to contact you and find out more about your practice, your website, um, I'd love for you to share that information because I, I can imagine quite a few people are listening saying that's the type of a lawyer that, that I would want to work with. I'm happy to. So my website is www.thenewyorkdivorcelawyers.com, all spelled out, T-H-E-N-E-W, thenewyorkdivorcelawyers.com. And if you go there, you'll see a picture of what my mother says is a very handsome young man. And um, you can contact me through there. And there's a website and there's a chat option and there's a blog and, and, and all of that. I've just been appointed to the custody committee of the ABA family law section. So I'll be working on that. And I like to represent the underdogs. I'm not in it for the money. Of course, I need to charge a reasonable rate and make and be able to pay my rent and overhead. But I'm I want to make sure that justice is done and people get their their justice. Why in 2018 are people offended when you look at them and say, I hope you get what you deserve? Shouldn't the answer be, why thank you? Yeah. Yeah. It's very telling. 
That's very telling. Um, and everyone listening, we will make sure that we put that contact information in the show notes. Um, I'm also going to put a link to your wonderful article that you wrote, Divorce Without Destruction, because it's it's a must read, I think, for anyone, um, both lawyer, professional, um, but also someone who's going through or thinking about the process. And I just want to say a great big thank you to everyone who has tuned in today. Um, please share Financially Ever After with any other women who are needing this support. Um, the biggest thing that we heard from women going through divorce as we interviewed them about where they felt strong and confident and where they felt like they needed more handholding. And it was definitely in the area of finances and also legal and emotional. So that's what this podcast is all about. And we as women need to support one another. If you do have any questions about your finances and about your settlement, what that might mean, um, feel free to reach out to us at francisfinancial.com. Um, you can also email me at stacy, S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. Thank you for your time investing in yourself, and we'll be talking to you in two weeks.